Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Podcast, the daily podcast where we break down Mad Max one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 17 of Mad Max, which begins with Goose parking his motorcycle in the halls of Justice Courtyard and ends with Max revving the blower on the V8 Pursuit Special. We begin this minute with Goose rolling into the courtyard and he comes to a stop, parks his motorcycle, and hops off. I've got several questions about this situation because (laughs) it just seems off to me so first and foremost with his right leg up on the handlebars like it is how did he initially get on the motorcycle that morning because his left leg is the only one that's functioning that is the leg that has to support the bike when you get off the kickstand and so it's like yeah i can see him like sitting on the seat swinging his leg up but then it's like what was the process where he got off of the kickstand and going enough that he could like not just instantly tip over because if he's not moving forward he's not being aided by physics to stay upright yeah I, yeah I, I don't know um also i have another question what was his plan if max wasn't there to help him out Oh, that's easy. He was just going to keep riding in circles. Until someone else showed up? Yes. Wow. In that case, what would have happened if he had run out of gas, if everybody (laughs) else called out sick that day? Then he would break his other leg. So he's doing circles, he comes to a stop, and he has to put his left leg down pretty quick to keep the bike from falling over. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Max comes up on his side, grabs the crutches for him, and then they just cut to inside the parking garage. Yeah, I think they... I think it's on purpose so they don't show how he's actually, like, getting off the bike. There's several steps that are missing. (laughs) Right. Because I'm sure it went to cut and he just hopped off the bike. Yeah. Because his leg wasn't really broken. Another question. uh, Why did he think it was a good idea to go riding without a shirt on? Now, this is not something that is unique to this movie. I've seen guys out on motorcycles all the time riding without shirts on. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you don't dress... For the ride, you dress for the crash. Well, it's interesting that you say that because you and I have, on occasion, gone without helmets now. Yeah, well, we live in New Hampshire. You can do that. Yes. I think it's a comfort level. Is that when you and I first started riding, you started riding before I joined you. So you get used to things sooner than I did. But at first I was like, okay, well, I'm going to wear like, you know, boots and jeans and a long sleeve shirt and a jacket over that and of course the the full face helmet and then gradually as I got more comfortable and time after time we didn't crash then I was like okay well now I feel comfortable wearing you know like um just flat simple flats that would provide absolutely no protection if anything happened and then I think this past summer I started even wearing flip-flops for short rides like going to my parents or something uh, same thing for for my shirt, you know, wearing layers versus wearing just a tank. And I think the comfort level has increased for us to the point where we're very we feel very casual about it. And I 
think that speaks to his comfort level on the bike. Yeah, it's just... Is that he's willing to go without, even even right after having crashed. Yeah. Because I'm sure you and I, if we crashed, we would revert back to being very strict about our clothing offering as much protection as possible. Yeah, I just, I don't like seeing people riding without any sort of layer protecting them from the pavement. You know, there's... There's too many pictures I've seen of people just mm. having layers of skin scraped away. Oh, yeah. Just the thought of it makes me cringe. Yes, I concur. You know, to say nothing of sunburns and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like, you're willing to bet Goose isn't, like, covering himself in suntan lotion. No. Or sunscreen. Not suntan lotion. Sunscreen. You know, he's not got, he doesn't have the bottles of SPF 50 sitting in his garage before he hops on the motorcycle in the morning. Yes. I think it also speaks to the time period of late 70s, early 80s that, you know, they weren't as aware about skin cancer and sunburns and SBF and what that means for you down the road, things like that. And I also noticed that when we were watching the behind the scenes documentary and seeing photos of... All the guys, all the crew, a lot of them were shirtless. Yeah, pretty much like 75% of the guys on the crew were yes. just hanging out at the shoots. Yep. <laughs> Not wearing shirts. Yep. Oh, it's just, there's so many things about his arrival at the at the headquarters that give me pause and whatnot. Yeah, there's something, I can't quite put my finger on what it is, but there's something arrogant about the scene. Yeah. Maybe it's the way he rides in with a broken leg. Um, you know why he looks like that? Like why he looks so arrogant to you? It's because he's eating an apple. I was actually, that's why I was pausing. Cause I'm like, it has a similar effect as the snack is more interesting than the scene. Um, his, his motorcycle riding is more interesting than the fact that he's hurt, that he has a broken leg. Yeah. Yeah. That he's such a skilled rider that it doesn't matter that he's missing a leg. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's kind of the same idea as the snack thing. Yeah. Yeah. One thing's for sure, riding the, the motorcycle that he is, the seat is higher up than what I usually ride on. Mm-hmm. My cruiser, the seat is much lower than the handlebars on the Kawasaki he was riding. The seat it's... was closer to the level of the handlebars. Yes. So it was definitely easy for him to swing his leg up and over. Right. But I mentioned last minute the words that the dispatch is saying over the loudspeaker. I mm-hmm. wanted to bring that up here because they started in the last minute talking about Memorandum 7. So the dispatcher is saying Memorandum 7. The hall, the captains of the hall have asked that pursuit officers refrain from using the slang bronze for the main force patrol. The word is considered disrespectful, and citizens should be actively discouraged from its use. Okay. It just doesn't sound like that bad of a term. I mean, we have terms nowadays for cops that are way more derogatory than bronze. So, But at the same time, it makes sense that there would be an official statement from the higher-ups saying, hey, don't encourage people. Don't, yeah. To use that terminology. Yeah. If they're trying to keep law and order, they don't want people subtly undermining their authority by using these nicknames. I guess so. I feel like dispatch is, and whatever power is behind dispatch, is very strict, very into regulations. Because I I wrote down that, is is she just reviewing regulations? It sounds like it. And it seems constant, like... Any time that we're in the presence of an interceptor, you hear her talking. Yeah. 
So is that just what she does all the time? It must just be. Just keeps talking. And if she doesn't have anything current, currently happening to say, then she just reverts to reviewing regulations. Yeah. I mean, she launches straight from telling private citizens not to use slang terms into Memorandum 8, which is talking about hospital vouchers and how the officers can pick them up from the following sector captains. And then she just starts reading off the the sector numbers for those captains. And it's just a series of numbers. And the um, closed captioning script just kind of trails off. <laughs> doesn't even pay attention to it after that. Yeah. Because... They get down into the parking garage and they're walking through the parking garage before they eventually run into Barry. But before we start talking about Barry, I want to talk about the garage itself. So I pulled some of this information from MadMaxMovies.com. They have a great page about filming locations. I filled or I pulled more of this information from the University of Melbourne's officially from the University of Melbourne's official website. So the MFP garage is located in the underground car park at Melbourne University. Above that car park is University Square, which is kind of like a tree-lined quad lawn area. And the uniquely shaped pillars in the parking structure are actually there so that the trees above can have room for their roots to go in. So I found that was a cool... So like the inside of the arches isn't concrete, it's dirt? Yeah. Oh, interesting. It's a beautiful space. Oh, yeah. It's very nice. I was looking around on Google Maps, checking out University Square, and there's just... It's tree-lined and picturesque. It's right in the middle of Melbourne Melbourne University. It's a beautiful campus. But um, if you search for the parking garage on Google Maps, it drops you where pedestrians walk out they've got these nice tunnel they've got these nice buildings where the elevators go up to and then you walk out you're right on the street there and so i drop the street view right on that marker and i'm looking around clicking up and down the streets i go i go up berry street i come back up leicester street and i could not for the life of me find how to drive into that car park I mean, you could see the elevator exits clear as day with the little parking signs and whatnot, but I could not figure out, okay, where in this street do you actually enter? So I went to the official website of Melbourne University, (laughs) um, which is now just called the University of Melbourne. But I found that in order to go into the car park, you have to go about a block to either side of where that pin is dropped, and you have to enter either from Berkeley Street or Bouverie Street which is like way further out than you would necessarily think it would be normally. So way to go Google Maps leading me astray. <laughs> so it sounds like the, the car park is much larger oh, yeah, it's, than we see. Yeah, it's pretty big. I mean, yeah. uh, even so, I mean, it's not bad. I mean, the fee, it's uh, $10 for up to, to four hours, uh, $20 for all day. And then if you show up after 5 p.m. on a weekday or on a weekend, it's like $8. That's better than Boston. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to remember that if we ever, ever visit Melbourne for some reason. Yep. Uh, oh, if we ever visit Melbourne, we are totally parking our car, our car in that garage. And we're going to set up our, our cell phone cameras and we're going to drive fast whatever rental car we have right at it so we can get that yes. exiting the garage. Absolutely. <laughs> so as they're walking through this car park, which I've got to say, they've changed the lighting situation from how it looks in the movie. It's mm. much brighter, much nicer looking in real life than it is here in the movie. Yeah, I would imagine so. It it seemed very, it was very dark, dingy. I imagine that that was partly to hide the rest of 
the parking lot yeah. so that it made the space feel smaller and more intimate. So as they're walking through the parking garage, I noticed several of the vehicles behind them. Yes. And I wanted to see if there was more information about those vehicles because there's a couple of big black SUV sized looking trucks. There's what appears to be like a legit rocket car at some point. Okay. Yeah. I noticed the rocket car. It was like, it's like shaped like an airplane, but the scale is off. Yeah. Like it couldn't actually fly in the air, but with a rocket, it could. So that's, that was weird. Yeah. Well, like that's essentially what rocket cars are. They're just fuselages with wheels yes. and rockets at the end, which kind of makes me wonder why the MFP would have one of those. Yeah. They're good at going really fast, but only in like one direction. For what purpose? You can't turn those things. You know, what occurs to me is, you know how uh, in recent years, like maybe in the, in the last 10 years, the government has taken like surplus military equipment, like tanks and SWAT gear and stuff like that and given it to local police departments. So there are local police departments who have military-grade equipment, like tanks. And so perhaps this was a hand-me-down. Either that, I imagine they might have also, like, confiscated it from someone. Like, mm. they, they, someone decided that they were tired of driving their, their rocket, rocket car, car out on the desert, and so they decided to bring it into civilization and okay. pulled over. <laughs> okay, big flaw in that theory is that who gets tired of driving a rocket car across Australia? Nobody that loves this movie. I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, at the end of their walk, we see a bunch of other regular yellow interceptors that are in various stages of assembly or disassembly. But what disappointed me most about this scene, I went back and I listened to the, the commentary because we have the, the Blu-ray of Mad Max, and it has the commentary track, and they completely skip over all of the cars in the background. I feel like there's a lot of stories Yeah. in that garage. Exactly. And it's frustrating, because it's like, what are those things? And we never get to learn what those things are. Nope. Sorry. So before we move on real quick, I want to note Goose, as he's walking in with Max. Yep, he's got his He's got his there. crutches. How ungainly he is walking. Like, he just cannot manage to walk with any modicum of grace on these crutches. Comparing that to how he was riding, mm -hmm. he was doing, like, slow maneuvers on a motorcycle, which isn't easy. Motorcycles want to go fast. They need to go fast. So doing a, a circle maneuver going really slow, that's very skillful. And it was very graceful. And then we get... And then he's walking on his crutches, and it's just the complete opposite. He's a mess. Yeah, he's much more graceful on wheels than he is on his feet. Because he's just his, his strategy for moving on those crutches is just kind of swing himself in a direction. Right. It's not, it, <laughs> that's not how they work. No. Which I think is appropriate to the character. He's more comfortable on the bike. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if, like, anybody in the production, like, anybody, like, told him how to use crutches. Or if they just, like, let it be natural, whatever <laughs> the actor knows and however he feels about the crutches, let him do it. Mm -hmm. I like in the, in this walk-up, as frustrated as I am about the lack of information of the cars behind them, I do like how Barry is hiding behind a pillar. 
And then yeah. he kind of pops out and he's so excited to show Max what he's got cooked up. I love how excited Goose and Barry are. Yeah, the two of them. Because yeah. they know they know what Barry has been working on and they know what he's cobbled together. And this is the big surprise for Max. Yeah. We learn next minute kind of who's behind the idea of putting this car together and why they do it. But for the time being, like, it's just Max and a couple of his his buddies. And they, they want to show this to him. So they they finally cross the garage and they get to the this V8 interceptor, which, according to the production crew, they all refer to it as the Black on Black. Yeah. Which is a pretty sick nickname. Yes, it is. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, the Black on Black. It's just so cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think... From the behind-the-scenes documentary we were watching the other day, one of the, my favorite things they said about the Black on Black is they parked it somewhere for some reason, and then two old ladies were walking by, uh-huh. and they started, like, touching it and admiring the lines on it. <laughs> the I don't remember if it was one of the stunt guys or one of the producers that, like, was driving the car that day. But he caught the old ladies admiring the car, and he didn't, like, shoo them away or anything like that. But he's like, okay, if we have a car that enamors old women as much as it does all of the young people on the staff, then they've got a winner on their hands, for sure. absolutely. So, because this is the first introduction to the Black on Black that we've got, I jumped back onto MadMaxMovies.com. They have a whole history page about the Interceptor, both in the first movie and in the second movie. But I'm going to focus mostly on the first one here. So, the Black on Black started life as a standard 1973 XB GT Ford Falcon Coupe, which is actually a car that was exclusive to Australia at the time. Um, And for the first couple of years of its life, it was just a car. But in 1976, Kennedy and Miller, they started pre-production and they needed a vehicle to be that iconic car. And so they picked up on the, uh, the GT Ford Falcon and... One of the ways they described it is they wanted like a, like an evil looking Australian car, and that that Falcon with the lines that it's got is just gorgeous. So around the same time that they were looking at vehicles and whatnot, they hired Murray Smith as part of the Mad Max crew, and one of his tasks was to put together the Interceptor. And he started by acquiring the XB Falcon, and then Murray, along with Peter Arcadipane, Arcadipane. A-R-K-A-R-C-A-D-I-P-A-N-E. Arcadipane? Anyway, Peter, Ray Beckerly, and various others, they started to modify the car and add things to it and make it film ready. So the main modification is the Concorde front end, and then, of course, the supercharger coming up through the hood, which, interestingly enough, doesn't actually function as a supercharger. It's just kind of there for, for the look. It doesn't actually do anything. Um, The Concorde front was a fairly new accessory at the time. It was designed by Peter Arcadipane at Ford Australia as a showpiece. And it later became available to the general public due to its popularity. So people saw it in the film. They wanted that front end and it just wasn't commercially available. But because there was so much demand, they eventually released it as an aftermarket part you could put on your vehicle. Nice. So following the production of Mad Max... The car was no longer needed for the movie because they had shot all the things for it. And it was modified once more to make it suitable for road use. So they took out the extra long pipes on the side. They put a regular hood on it. 
and they brought it around to shopping centers and car shows and whatnot as part of the film production. And what's kind of funny is at one point they sold it. So when they did Mad Max 2, they had to find it and buy it back. And buy it back. <laughs> Which I thought, I, I got such a kick out of that fact. But Yes. So you mentioned that once production was over, they they like remodified it to make it uh, road legal. Yeah. Well, I remember them talking in the behind the scenes documentary that they used that vehicle, the black on black, to ferry people to set. Yeah, they used it for everything. Yeah, it was. They were driving it like a normal car, like the whole time during production, and it wasn't street legal. Technically not. It's it's that guerrilla filmmaking. Yes. Yeah. That we've heard referred to a couple <laughs> times in our research. I think we'll get into it a little bit further down the road about their attitude about about filming and yeah. having permission. And we'll probably get into it when there's a reference to the get out of jail free card. Yep. That's, um, uh, we'll bring it up, I think, then. A bit later on. Yeah. So they get over to the black on black mm-hmm. and uh, Goose tells Barry to... What does he say? Kick it in the guts. He says, kick it in the guts, Barry. And Barry reaches in and he turns over that engine and it's got such a satisfying roar. Like it just starts right up and it's got that rumble and that that bit of a roar to it, but it's not like too overall. It's just, it, it's a beautiful sounding machine. Okay. My notes say that not knowing anything about cars puts me at a bit of a disadvantage here because that like, it all went over my head. What I did appreciate was... The sound of the engine starting up and the echo around Mm. the garage was really beautiful. And I think it really accentuated the noises that the car was making. Now, what those noises the car was making mean? No idea. I got nothing. (laughs) So Barry is played by the actor David Cameron. He is labeled in the credits as underground mechanic, even though he's... Named? Named several times. I don't know why they didn't put that. I think... Okay. Short sidetrack tangent... Whoever wrote the credits for this movie... Didn't do a very good job. Yeah. They made several mistakes or omissions or something. It's like, what? Come on. Let's... let's... And that worries me because I put a lot of faith into IMDb. Yeah. (laughs) Like, things I learned on on IMDb, I, like, say to other people as fact. Yeah. And I've never had IMDb let me down like this before. But this is the... Second or third mistake in the credits. And we're 17 minutes into the movie. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, this is why we always, I... this is why we always double check with the movie itself. Yes. <laughs> There's a reason we're going minute by minute of the movie and not just combing through the IMDb page. Absolutely. As much as it sounds like what we're doing. And ironically <laughs> enough, all my information on David Cameron. Comes from IMDb. Comes from IMDb. So his IMDb page starts off with his short bio. Uh, so David Cameron, Barry, the underground mechanic, graduated from Sydney's National Institute of Dramatic Art to become a critically acclaimed, award-winning stage and screen actor. He has played major roles for the Melbourne Theatre Company, the Sydney Theatre Company, and Playbox, and he was also in the first Australian Rocky Horror Show. Okay. <laughs> and they and he's, they stuck him underground to and work they... on cars in the movie. <laughs> yeah. So with his, like a couple of lines. Yeah. His top four on IMDb, number one, most recognized for Mad Max, where he's credited as Underground Mechanic. The next three things on his top four, 
it's not things that he's done as an actor, it's things he's done as a director. Like, he stepped behind the camera for a bunch of stuff. Um, his number two most well-known thing is a 2007 movie called Dog Star, where he was the director. I did not look into that one. I think it's a cartoon. <laughs> number three is another thing he directed. This was a TV show called Stingers. It ran from 1998 to 2004. And then the last thing on his IMDb known for list is a 2001 TV show called Horace and Tina that he directed. Um, that one is a TV show that ran for about one season. It's about mischievous gnomes and the human girl who is the only one who can see them. It's kind of a... It's a, it's a puppet show, basically. Human so... actors and the gnomes are puppets. And the gnomes are also the title characters. So is it geared toward... Is it geared toward children? Yes. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I did not look too much into it because, frankly, the gnome puppets kind of freaked me out. Okay. <laughs> so David Cameron's first role was a 1971 episode of Dynasty. And he actually still makes appearances on TV shows, most recently showing up in a 2016 episode of the show Love Child. So, Dynasty, isn't that the American soap opera set I think in so. Texas? So, the same Dynasty? I think so. Oh. I mean, unless they made an Australian version in Well, they could have. I mean, we do stuff like that all the time. Yeah. The Office and, you know, stuff like that. I wouldn't put it past them. No. So, an interesting thing about Barry is that production originally wanted him to be a one-armed mechanic, but that would have required him to basically act with his hand tied behind his back, which... Considering how many times the phrase, oh, I can do such and such with one arm tied behind my back is used, it would be an interesting thing to be like, oh, I can outact you with my arm tied behind my back. But at the same time, it would have looked really dumb. Yeah, I think it would have just been silly. Yeah. Like, we, we already get the sense that he's a very skilled mechanic. Yeah. Which we learn a, a little bit more about in oh, future yeah. minutes. He explains in minute 18 how he got the yeah. whole thing together. But... We don't need him being a one-armed mechanic to sell us on him being a good mechanic. Yeah. That is already done. I mean, that's not to say they didn't want him to have some sort of gimmick. They gave him that speech impediment as kind of a, okay, well, we don't want to do the one-armed thing. He's got to have something that makes him a little off, so let's give him a speech impediment. Yeah. So Barry comes around to the front of the black-on-black, -black and he tells uh, Max that this is one of the last V8s, one of the last V8 engines. And so Goose responds to that, saying, shut the gate on this one, Max. It's the duck's guts. Wouldn't you like to know more about that phrasing? Oh, yes. So, on Urban Dictionary, the top definition for duck's guts is an Australian expression, if you think something is awesome, brilliant, etc., then it is said to be the duck's guts. Synonyms include bee's knees, cat's pajamas, or strangely <laughs> enough, the cat's arse. <laughs> okay. So. Well, that, that fits. I feel like Duck's Guts rolls better off an Australian accent than it does an American one. Yeah, yeah. It, it sounds like it's hard to say. Like, I Ducks, had trouble guts, saying it. Duck's <laughs> Guts. Yeah. Yeah. For a second, when I was listening to this minute, I thought he was saying Nuck's Guts. And I immediately, immediately thought of the character from Fury Road, whose name is Nuck. Nux. Nux. Uh, yeah, so that immediately brought me to that, and I wondered if there was a connection, but never mind, because that's not what he was saying. <laughs> so 
Barry is very excitedly telling Max facts about the engine, talking about how she uh, she sucks nitro, got a phase four head, twin overhead cam. Goose interjects, tell him about the blower, tell him about the blower. And so Barry's like, oh, it's 600 horsepower through the wheels with the blower. She's meanness put to music. Okay, so... As Barry, I think it is, says it, he's, he, um, he, when he says the 600 horsepower part, that's when Max's expression changes. Yeah. Before that, he's just chewing his apple, um, and it, he seems kind of unfazed. Mm-hmm. But once he mentions, once Barry mentions the 600 horsepower, Max starts paying attention. Oh, yeah. And we also start getting close-ups of the blower. Yes. It's very like purposeful. Yeah. Yes. And as we're, I think it's when we're in that close up over the blower is when Goose says something about music. And I heard the word music, but I couldn't say, couldn't hear what he was saying. What was the line again? The line is she's meanness put to music. Yes. So I think that was purposeful that they're equating the sound of the engine with music. Yeah. And you can tell that Max is just hypnotized. Yes. By this thing. And Goose actually comes up and like waves his hand in front of Max's head and says he's in a coma. And Barry's like, he loves it. And it's like, we've seen Max staring at things earlier in this movie. Like, and that expression that he had on his face when he was watching Jesse play the saxophone, it's different than the one that we see as he's staring at the supercharger. It's not the same type of emotion, but you can tell that he's entranced by this thing yes yes very much so yeah and we actually end the minute with one of those close-ups on the blower and um it's not until next minute that he actually like snaps out of his (laughs) his um hypnotized state so to speak yes but we'll get into that tomorrow so if you can pull yourself away from an entrancing blower, our website is <laughs> madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash madmaxminute. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute number 17. We will see you tomorrow. Motorbikes and men.